uh, somewhere along the Oregon coast. I've been cycling from Seattle down to San Francisco. And I've stopped here on a bridge, a narrow bridge. There's only about three feet to cycle. Uh, and as you can hear, there are hundreds of cars that are passing, including cement trucks in particular, the logging trucks. They're passing at uh, significant speed, just literally a few feet away. And there are wing mirrors, what we call in, in Britain, the side mirrors are passing literally just past the head um, as you're cycling along. And every time a car in particular uh, logging truck passes, they create a massive gust of wind that buffets you and pushes you uh, against towards the rail. And then you can overcorrect and steer yourself back out into the road. So why am I recording this introduction here? It's because when we face uncertainty, that fear of uncertainty, like now, one of our most natural responses, evolved responses, sometimes a good idea of responses, is to panic. Uh, and that's what this episode is about. It's about what happens to your brain, to your body, to your behavior, to your perceptions of yourself in the world when you go to that highly evolved state of panic. And it's, again, becoming aware of how and why we panic that creates the possibility of engaging and responding with uncertainty in a different way. And that different way is to activate your prefrontal cortex, something I'm having to do very strongly right now as I cycle across this bridge. So I hope you enjoy the words of this episode. Thank you for listening. Feeling disempowered in the face of uncertainty is a deeply natural response. When disempowered, which many of your brains are feeling right now in the face of COVID-19, your brain state is similar to our ancestors' brain state when they faced a moment of imminent death. You inherited this response. We all did. Each of us has seen the world through their brains and all the millions of brains that came afterwards. These brains and their evolved responses are deep inside you and everyone around you. We are now collectively hearing the predator's roar. We know it's out there, except this predator is invisible to the naked eye, which makes it all the more frightening. Think of the last horror film you watched. Most likely the setting was dark, either at night, in the deep sea, or in outer space. And the predator or attacker didn't make itself known. It hid. It stalked. Of course, the coronavirus is not stalking in any literal sense, but each of us knows that given enough time, the likelihood of being caught by COVID-19 virus is not improbable. In fact, in a recent study by the Lab of Misfits, we showed that most people believe they will be caught within the next three months. And when this happens, we know that severity is likely to be low for the vast majority of people. We can even model this using such mathematical tools as Bayesian statistics. But Professor Dale Purvis and I have written that our brains are not in any literal sense Bayesian machines. Yes, we are shaped by the probabilities of past experience, to be sure, but our perceptions are also strongly influenced by something else. Our ability to imagine an event 
and the imagined significance of that event. We are shaped by what if. No matter how probable or improbable the possibility of an experience occurring, we focus on the cost function, in other words, the consequence of the thing happening, and less on the probability of it happening in the first place. It is our imagined answer to what if that got us to the moon. Why, what if, how is the sequence of science itself. But it's also what induces us to buy a lottery ticket, knowing that the chance of winning are effectively zero. It's the basis for the Avengers going against the Oz to save human civilization. In fact, it's the basis of any hero's journey. Have you ever seen an average hero that applies statistics dispassionately? And it's also the imagined consequence of the what if that causes us to panic in the face of COVID uncertainty. We weigh the rational probability of something happening in general against the irrational significance of what might happen to me. While the probability of a plane crashing is extremely low in general, the cost to me of it not flying thousands of meters above the ground is really high. We can know the statistics, we can also imagine, and it's this remarkable power of the brain's ability to hold two realities at the same time, the one that is and the one that might be, that is the heart of any decision to step forward into uncertainty or to step back. The question for now, faced with the current situation is, what are you going to do? Shrink back and panic or step forward and expand? Most of us, it's panic. So what's the cost of doing so? You're experiencing drastic physiological changes. Your muscles tense, your heart rate accelerates, blood pressure rises, your respiratory rate increases, Catecholamine, which are the chemicals used to communicate between your neurons, increases. Then additional brain neurotransmitters and hormones, among, among them is adrenaline, are released that trigger a lasting war-like state of arousal. Your attention locks onto the target of your fear, and you can pay attention to little else. Perceptually, you feel energetic with a strong desire to take immediate protective action. In contrast, your ability to think proactively stops, diminishing your perceived space of possibility. It's as if your brain runs on the following internal dialogue. Run! Where? I don't know. I don't care. Just away from here. Okay, go, go, go. And then afterwards, your brain is likely to ruminate on the source of your panic, reinforcing its own circuitry that gave rise to it, making it more likely that you'll panic again in the face of a similar situation. Not thinking is sometimes a great idea, at least in the first instance, when you're trying to escape from a lion, but it quickly can become a real problem as soon as you need to make a useful decision, such as when you're trying to escape from a failed robbery through closed doors. And this actually happened in Australia. A bank robber walked into the bank, handed the teller a note. The shutters behind the counter shut down. He ran to the door. He tried to pound his way through it. It's as if he was locked. And after about five minutes, someone else walked into the, into the bank. It never occurred to him to think to pull the door open. Under the stress of panic, his unthinking brain became super efficient. But in doing so, his intelligence 
crashed into the very door through which he is trying to escape. He was no longer adaptable. His space of cognitive possibility collapsed to a single dimension, which was just simply forward. He couldn't see the obvious solution to the problem that the closed door presented. So, why is this happening? Because we feel the need to do something, indeed anything, to decrease uncertainty. So, action gives us the illusion of being in control. Action itself feels cathartic. Whether useful is almost secondary. And unthinking panic spurs more panic, since human behavior, like the coronavirus itself, is contagious. Think about a deer. They are prey. When grazing, they are exquisitely tuned to each other's actions and behavior. Any sudden movement of one alerts others to potential threat that they themselves cannot see. Another's panic gives others advance warning of imminent danger. Trigger one and you trigger the whole group. Collectively, they are effectively an extended interconnected alarm system. We do the same. Human emotions, actions, and even motivations are contagious. And not just panic, but laughter and smiling and happiness and sadness too. We frequently copy those that are like us, often without thinking. Which is why collective panic, when controlled from the outside, can be weaponized. Native Americans would induce panic in buffaloes and then shepherd the unthinking stampede over a cliff. When you enter a collective emotional stampede, you lose agency. You don't know if safety is ahead of you or if it's a cliff. It doesn't even occur to you to ask the question. When that panic remains elevated for an extended period of time, your body goes over a physiological cliff. When the stress hormone cortisol remains high for an extended period of time, your immune system deteriorates, making you more susceptible to illness. And if you get ill, the severity of the illness will be greater. Your brain cells also wither and even die. But this cannot go on forever. Eventually, your brain needs closure. What often comes next, indeed too often, what gives you that closure? Anger and even hate. Why? Because going from fear to anger is a powerful reaction. And that is the point. It is a reaction, not a proaction. It's a very efficient way to deal with the stress of the unknown because an angry brain is a certain brain, not objectively, but subjectively. If you feel justified in almost everything you do and believe, no matter how destructive your actions might be to yourself, that's often because you're responding to the fear of uncertainty. And to make sure you maintain that certainty, since humility is no longer possible for such a person, your brain will unconsciously search for evidence to confirm what it believes to be true anyway. In other words, to justify that fear and anger. A necessary corollary is that you also ignore evidence that contradicts your beliefs. So much so that to challenge someone's view, especially a view that defines their identity, actually strengthens that view. And the more objective the evidence, the more they will hold to their subjective belief. Which means data or evidence, ironically, can actually push a disempowered brain towards faith and away from rationality. Which is why, in anger, you will become morally judgmental. You will become an extreme version of yourself. If you're conservative, you'll become more conservative. If you're liberal, you'll become even more liberal. Your brain will go to what is unfamiliar. And that familiar is certain. Look around you and you'll see it everywhere. But also look inside you 
because you'll find it there too. At least it was in the past. It's natural, it's understandable, but there's another way. And the other way is to activate your prefrontal cortex. In our next podcast, you'll find out why the power of being proactive in the face of uncertainty is so essential to thriving in the very place your brain evolved to avoid. Thank you again for listening. My name is Bo Lotto and thank you for listening to my Expanding Perception podcast, which will be an ever-expanding story of the neuroscience of uncertainty and how we can not just cope with it, but expand because of it. My aim in creating this podcast is really to try to help you increase your perceptual intelligence, which will give you the ability to make the decisions and take the actions that will foster a more loving, adaptable, and optimistic life in an increasingly uncertain world. My hope is that this podcast will help you in your journey to self-honesty, which is one of the hardest journeys we can take in our life, since it's a never-ending practice and might take you to places that you might want to avoid. But if you have the courage and compassion to go on this journey, you'll find that it's worth it, and it will create true authenticity in your way of being. A deeper consideration of many of the ideas in the Expanding Perception podcast can be found in my book, Deviate, The Creative Power of Transforming Your Perception. You can also follow me and my lab of misfits on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also take part in experiments on the Lab of Misfits website that we've designed just for you to help you better understand who you are. So thank you, and I hope you enjoy these episodes.